Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Asaf Nevo, thank you for joining us today. Could you please introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, sure. Hey, David. It's great to be here today. So yeah, my name is Asaf and I'm 39 years old, father of two from Haifa, Israel. And I'm here to talk with you about what? Entrepreneurship. That's what we're going to talk about, the journey. Leadership, entrepreneurship, your CEO journey. Let's talk about your current role. You're about six, seven months in as the chief business officer. What does that role entail? What do you do? Yeah, so actually, so actually, as the latest update, I actually left the last role. So being a CEO for almost 17 years of my companies and then head of revenue for a company that acquired uh, my startup and then chief business officer for just another company, I'm now kind of like in between. I'm doing working on some new entrepreneurship projects and also doing some consultancy for uh, startup companies, mainly around fundraising, storytelling, things like that, but mainly working on my next gigs entrepreneurship it's a disease <laughs> and i'm and i'm definitely infected so last time we spoke you said that you like to start companies and once you have them started and settled you're off to the next thing and i believe you were working on something to do with ai are you still involved at all with the ai space definitely so until now in my in my past companies it wasn't a short journey it was like twice eight to nine years until the companies were big enough and, and we were able to actually move into the next step and, and sell them. But now I'm working working more on um, like smaller businesses. It's not it's not smaller businesses. It's less like like the end goal now is not to build a huge company. That's kind of like the, the goal. It's to do something a bit smaller, a bit faster, um, keep it less uh, bureaucracy oriented and so on. But one of the things, one of the companies we're building goes around AI and not to, about using AI as much as it is making sure AI is being used for good and not leveraging you know, the technologies for bad purposes. Mainly coming from the fact that we are coming from the data space. Our, our past company was heavy on the data side and we saw how data and GDPR and the regulations around data took really long time to actually become you know, enforceable for companies and for the regulations. And I think that the AI paste is 50,000 times faster than what happened in the data side. And I think that we must get something, some sort of at least community boundaries of what AI could be used for and what AI cannot be used for. So one of the things we're building is this, this system that helps the community control the usage of AI for good. It's still in stealth mode, but it's going to be launched soon. I imagine there's uh, a lot of things that you can't talk about given that it's in stealth mode, but would it be at all similar to like NFT or something where it, it confirms like ownership of a certain asset so no one could like take your face and make you do something else with AI generated content? That's actually a good idea. Maybe that's <laughs> that's a pivot okay. we should maybe that's a pivot we should do. No, it's more it's more Call on me. Yeah, I will. It's more on, a, you know, self-regulating processes, taking commitments to use it for good, helping companies understand how they should use it for good, helping individuals to use AI for good, but also detect when a company is not using AI for good purposes and, and raise the flag. So we are big fans of the community and we believe that community has a big part in everything related to innovation, growth and so on. So we decided to, to take the community and get them into the picture as early as possible. Again, if, if, we, if we compare it to what happened in the data space 10 years ago, 
then we see that you know Cambridge Analytica crisis and everything relates to Facebook data privacy, Instagram data privacy, all the other social networks data privacy. I think if the community was more active, a lot of the data breaches and a lot of the data misused would have been prevented. And we try to kind of like do the same thing on AI because if we will wait for the regulators, uh, it takes them years to understand how to really build the processes to make sure everything is safe. So we try to make it faster. Looking at the glass being half full, it seems like we as a species are fairly lucky, both in having the planet that we have, but also when you look at the pandemic, they said if it were a more deadly disease, it could have been much bigger. It was almost like a practice for us to figure out how to respond to a global pandemic. And similarly, you bring up Cambridge Analytica and some of the, the data issues that seem to raise a red flag that we're now well aware of as we enter into the AI space, which has an exponential rate of growth. Would you agree that, that we're a little bit lucky or like, how, how do you see that? No, I think I think we're definitely lucky. I think the world is moving fast in a very fast pace. But I think that, like in the data side, sometimes when things are growing so fast, there are people who are misusing the technology, not not necessarily from a bad purposes, right? But kind of like the collateral damage of of fast growth is sometimes it's being misused. And the misuse not always happening because the person who's misusing it mean to do bad things. But I think that once, again, if I'm taking the data as the conversion to something that's grow very fast in the last couple of years, the need of data, the usage of data, the harvesting of data and collection of data, I think you can actually see that a lot of the misuses came from good intentions. Facebook has started using and, and gathering data for good intentions, for creating a better world, to make people feel less lonely, to build communities and so on. They use the data for monetization and at some point, something lost in the way of understanding what is okay and what's not, what's moral and what's not, until Cambridge Analytics. I think Cambridge Analytics was kind of like a crisis that really showed how a big company or a third-party company is misusing a big company data license, and and it kind of like ring the bells for everyone. And when you're looking at the data timeline, it took the regulation six or seven years from the time someone raised the flag, the data could be something harmful until Cambridge Analytic happened like five years after the first conversation about GDPR. And it took the GDPR three more years until actually starting to enforce regulation. In this time frame, I don't think we're even aware of how many bad things happen because of data or misuse of data. And I think it's good that we don't know. Like ignorance, ignorance sometimes is not a bad thing. Same thing with AI. Same thing with AI in my mind. There's a lot of good things. Glasses is, uh, you know, three quarters full, not half full. <laughs> but, but the last one, we need to make sure it's being used properly. Also, I think that sometimes with our progress, we it's almost like holding up a mirror to ourselves. Sometimes we don't realize some of our innate characteristics. So you brought up an interesting point how Facebook started in, with the idea of bringing people together, but because of a function of the human mind to over-index or bias negative information, it actually served to drive us apart because as people became fearful or angry at certain things, they'd go further down the rabbit hole, if you will, and dinner tables were split in two between different realities. So do you see something similar, like a similar threat with AI where people can have even more convincing realities that differ? That's a great question. To be honest, 
I was never very good at predicting <laughs> a lot of things, or at least not very good at well predicting things. So I don't have like a clear mind. I'm more of looking at the shorter and I'm saying, whatever going to happen, whether I'm able to predict it or not, I know that people need to be aware of danger and what could or could not happen. And they need to be aware of it. I think awareness is his first stop. And I think that if you look at how people look at data, especially in Europe, about their private data and how they're looking at it today compared to 10 years ago, there's a huge progress in how people understand that they need to protect their data and how their data could be used. I think the same thing is going to be happening, you know, with AI at some point. Like, it's very fun for me that when I'm using Google Photos or Apple Photos, it could recognize myself and my wife and my kids and it really help me filter you know, filter my photo library very easily and search for photos very easily. But maybe if I will get arrested at an airport because of the same pictures, for whatever reason, because some computer didn't use the AI well, misuse of, of the AI data and the AI technology, I might have a different opinion about how it works and I might, might not be willing to provide my photos to Google anymore. I'm just, you know, shooting down a scenario. It never happened. But I'm just saying, I don't know where it's going to come. I think nobody could have predicted that uh, Cambridge Analytics would be able to use the data in order to create profiles and then in order to create political campaigns. I don't know where it's going to blow up, but I think we need to be aware of that, the fact that it could and we need to be committed enough to make sure it's not. So that's kind of like from all the things I'm working on, this is the most, most exciting one because I think that's the most important with the best impact, you know, the best impact that's involved. I spoke to a gentleman in Silicon Valley who uh, also is CEO of an AI company, and he said that he believes the large language models are just, uh, we'll be on to something else in two to three years. Like this is a temporary space for us to get used to AI and, and put in protocols and best practices now before something even more powerful comes. So I was curious what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% there. I think the LLM show us uh, the power of the combination between unbelievable amount of data and unbelievable power of computing and, and putting those two together. Think about how much data you share with ChatGPT or any other LLM equivalent when you're trying to research something. Like you never know what's what's the back end of those things looks like. I'm not saying that they're looking bad, but you never know. And the amount of things that you expose, because the LLM is so strong, and the experience, they also, it's not only the model, they also built an amazingly frictionless experience for you. This is as if you're speaking with a human being or an assistant on the other side that could actually understand you very well. And you don't really know, like, what's the next step? You know, OpenAI comes down with something new every once in a while. We don't know what they have in their backlog in terms of new models. Again, I'm not saying I have nothing against OpenAI. I'm not saying that they're doing anything. I think on the, other, on, on the contrary, I think this is an amazing company. But you never know. Facebook is also an amazing company and does a lot of good things. Well, if there's one thing we learned, I think it's also that by the time it rolls out to the public, there's R&D is much further along on the next thing. So yeah, that is something to, to keep in mind. It was really surprising how quickly we pivoted from Google search though. I probably use Google 50% of the time now, whereas I used to use it for everything. So it, it's just interesting when you have this almost paradigm shift happen overnight seemingly. I really like it. Like it's amazing that if, if you now need to dig into some sort of research, it's not always giving you the most accurate answer, right? But it's still, even though you know that you need to validate, it's still provided with the framework. So even if to the be honest, though, is, don't we have to do that with humans? Absolutely, that's what I'm like saying. But here, you, but you here, have to when, validate what I'm saying. <laughs> but but here, when it's done, uh, you're angry. 
You know, when it's you, when you're saying, right. oh, okay, he was tired, he didn't sleep at night, he's not very good at his job, but you're expecting the computer to be perfect at his job. Yeah, we have, yeah. We have less the tolerance. airplanes can't make mistakes. Exactly. We have less tolerance to AI mistakes. But I think that even though the answers are not always accurate, it's still an unbelievable useful tool that allows you to really accelerate, at least for me, accelerate a lot of the tasks that I don't like doing and really accelerate moving them away from my table with a very good outcome. So I know I need to validate, I'm double checking facts and everything it says, but it's really helpful because sometimes when I'm doing some research on the market or trying to get some figures on how things looks or trying to get ideas for things that I have, sometimes I'm working with companies on spaces that I have no idea. Like, I don't know exactly what they're doing. I'm unfamiliar with the space. I don't know the market. And I can get into things so quickly rather than if I would go to Google and start learn, it would take me lots of time. Here I can really quick understand, like at least who's against who, what's the big figures, how it looks and so on. So it's it's an amazing tool. It's an amazing tool. Yeah, it complements Google pretty well. Like you use Google more on the back end for verification, go to Google Scholar or something like that to check references. But yeah, as far as just getting like traction very quickly in a, in a new direction or ideation, it's amazing. I think it'd be helpful also to know its confidence level on certain answers. When you get the result, it's like this part is like 100% accurate, but please, please verify this section or something like that. That's actually a good idea. I never tried to ask him in the prompt, what's your probability number? Did you try no, no, I just thought about it when we were having this conversation. That's what, what I'm asking them. I'm always asking them to provide me with reference. So show me, show me where you brought the data from. And then I could read to see if, if it's actually the correct data or it was manipulated. But asking him for what's probability, that's, that's smart. When you ask it that prompt, that question, where did you get this data? Is it pretty accurate, the result that you get? Yeah, because I have a very like structured mind when I'm thinking of things. So I'm looking into steps and I learned that like like human beings, when you have a complicated task, you can't just throw it out, even if the prompt is very well well uh, designed. You need to do it in, in baby steps. And every step that I'm taking, I'm always trying to get the data into some sort of a table because it also helps, at least in my in my experience, it helps the, the JGPT to being able to, to summarize everything in short terms. And then I ask him for each of them to provide me with the reference to why why did he put this specific row. It makes mistakes, but but as I'm working more and more on this, it helps really sharpen up like the conversation. I see. Yeah, I have to say, I use it just just to sum it up. I use it to also something pretty cool. A couple of weeks ago, which I never uh, tried before, I needed for a project I did. I needed to kind of like interview, and the project was on on audience that I cannot interview. Like it was just I just couldn't physically. It was impossible to interview a real person. So I explained the GPT what I'm what I want to do and who I want to interview. And I just told him, I'm going to interview you and you're going to answer me as if you are with this and this, you know, profile. And it was one of the most fulfilling experiences I had. It felt like I'm speaking with someone. And, and after I did the interview, I asked him now, go back to the question I asked you and the answers you gave me and explain why did you answer that way. And then I got, I got like the feeling of I'm speaking with a human being on a specific topic. And then also he explained to me on which researches he, he actually, or not he, it actually decided to answer the way he answered, or the, the way it answered. And it was, it was really almost overwhelming how, how it was really fun. It was a fun, you know, research. That's brilliant. The asking why it, it answered that way, because that helps you also verify from your understanding of that person or that entity why they might, and that would give you 
I guess, an indication on how accurate it might be. So like if they strongly value. Yeah, I needed to do something that involved kids, you know, and I can't okay. interview kids or at least not in big scale. It's not very common to go and ask kids questions these days. So I needed to use the model for that. And I told them, you're oh, going to be see. this kid with this and this profile, and I'm going to ask you questions, and I want you to answer as if you're the kid. And it was it was really one of the most powerful experiences I had with the model because it was really, really accurate, and he provided like really good understanding of why it answered the way it did. And it was amazing. So that was a really good idea you gave us. What other sources of knowledge do you check? Like, do you subscribe to any newsletters for AI or what, how do you stay up to date with the developments in this space? That's a good question. Not very good at newsletters. I'm easily distracted. So I'm not very fan. I'm not a big fan of subscribing to a lot of newsletters. I'm reading a lot, a lot of what's going on online. I don't know. I just, I'm just part of some community channels and things like that but i'm not so heavy on those things i'm just i'm just reading what's hot and then i'm going in and playing with it like i was i was not able to yet came up with a good enough prompt for like mid journey or or dally or one of those i'm not very graphic i'm very technical so i'm very good with the models with the language models have you it's asked ChatGPT to give you prompts? Yeah, this works, but I didn't really need it. I just wanted to play with it. But out of my mind, I wasn't able to, to really get good prompts out of it. Okay. I'd like to talk a little bit about your location in Haifa. It seems to be a, an innovation hub, an entrepreneurship hub. And I spoke with a gentleman in Istanbul like maybe a month ago. And he said as well, like Istanbul is kind of a hub for innovation and startups. It's at the crossroads of, of the continents and many cultures. I was curious in your experience and understanding, why is uh, Haifa and Israel in general such a startup like space? Why is it so prolific there? Yes, I think, you know, when you're looking at Israel, Tel Aviv is definitely the capital of the startups and the tech. But we see a lot of movement, at least in the last decade, to Haifa from, from a couple of reasons. First of all, you would see here, at least until the last two years, majority of companies here were more more mature than Tel Aviv. Like you would not see a lot of pre-seed companies here. Most of them would be like Series A, Series B, that they already have funds and they're already hiring teams. Haifa has the biggest amount of students, of science students. We have the Technion, which is kind of like the Israeli MIT. And there is the Haifa University, which has lots of students who are studying computer science and such. So there's a lots of uh, relatively cheap work workforce if you need when you're starting the company. In general, costs here could be 20-30% lower than in Tel Aviv. So it's also something to keep in mind, and it's less noisy. So unless you really need to be in Tel Aviv, because whatever reason, Haifa is a really good alternative. Okay. And do you travel much? Because your previous company was a collaboration between a, a German location and Haifa location. Is that correct? Oh, you mean in my last role at Coach, which is Coro, I didn't travel that much. I wasn't there for so long. I was there for like six months. When I was in Pico at my company, I traveled a lot to customers in Europe and a lot. We had an office in the United States, so I traveled back and forth a lot. I did. In the last year, ever since we, we sold it to, to Infront, I didn't travel that much, less than I used to in my company. Okay. I was curious in your experience with uh, business and international business, how's that changed your perspective working with people in other countries? Like, What's something that stands out to you? That's a good question. There's a lot of things. 
we had a lot of employees at the U.S., so I know a lot about, you know, U.S. culture compared to Israeli culture. I think we are more, Israelis are sometimes more focused on, you know, running fast forward, while, you know, Americans could sometimes be more focused on the research and the, and the comfort level and, and understanding. Like, we are more like, it's going to be okay. And the American employees were sometimes more like, we need to be very confident about what we are doing, which took us time to, to balance the different, the different approaches. But I think all in all, I've been doing global businesses for, for a decade now. Some, yeah, from 2013, 2014, so nine to 10 years. At least for me, I'm feeling home almost anywhere I am. So if I'm now in Germany or, or in Philadelphia or in St. Louis, I'm feeling okay. And we had investors coming from Hong Kong and also from St. Louis, Missouri. So I worked with, <laughs> with very different type of cultures and very different type of locations. And, and, you know, we managed. So although the, the, the time differences and the cultural differences, it wasn't that complicated. Okay. That's interesting to hear the U.S. being more, I don't know if conservative is the right word, but wanting to check facts and figures before they move yeah, ahead. I'm not sure conservative. It's not, we had, we had some badasses working with us at the state. So it wasn't, they weren't conservative. It's more of, I'll give you an example. It's more from the early stages, not, not from, from people who work with us. Pretty early down the road of Pico, we participated in an accelerator in Philadelphia, which after we stayed in Philadelphia for a couple of months, and we had this shared office space with other companies from our court. There was planned to be some sort of a roadshow to San Francisco to meet investors. We received a list of, I don't know how many, let's say 50 investors, and we just emailed everybody. <laughs> we just shoot it out. We said, whoever is going to respond, we're going to start the conversation, but we send an email to everybody. It took us three hours, maybe, to prepare the email, to add in all the email addresses, and to send it out. I don't remember how many meetings we got out of it. Our fellow Americans, founders of other companies, did a lot of research on every investor, and they were trying to see the fit because they were really concerned. They were really concerned about the names. They didn't want to reach out to an irrelevant investor. Like we played, we played the big numbers game and they played like the boutique the cherry right. picking investor. I can't, I can't say what's, what's good or what's bad. Like I cannot defend and say that our approach is better. Our approach was it's, it's a huge time consuming task. We need to do it as fast as possible. We don't know whether they're going to answer us or not. We don't know whether they care about what we do or not. And we don't want to spend, I don't know, let's say an hour research multiply by 50 different investors. That's a lot of hours. Other founders spend like three days on trying to do those cold emails type of thing. And surprisingly enough, results were nobody got an investment from this virtual anyhow. <laughs> Bottom line, no investment. But, but at the end of the day, we didn't get less traffic because of that. And we didn't care too much about how do we... It was so early that we didn't care. Like nobody would have remembered our name from the signal, at least in our mind from the signature at an email. We were more like lightheaded. And our fellow founders were more concerned about the defects that could happen to a cold email or to the wrong investor email. That's a big, that's, that was a big different approach. As a context, I would say Pico was the only company from the core that actually succeeded and got acquired at the end. So I don't know. I don't know if it is, has something to do with this specific example, but it shows like the state of mind of what we do, which is, which is let, let's try and do things fast and not waste a lot of time on things that we don't think that are that important. They both make sense, both approaches. And the more that I personally see and learn, 
I think you, to a large extent, create your own reality. So whichever way you behave becomes the way that your world is. I tend to agree. I saw this interview back in the day with uh, Steve Jobs, and he was saying he never had anyone that he reached out to say no, like when he when he reached out for help. He just would be a kid asking like for mentorship and someone would help him out from, I think, Hewlett, H&P, Hewlett Packard, and then just all throughout his career. And some people would be scared or embarrassed to, to ask for help, or maybe they'll say no, or, you know, it sounds like perhaps your, your colleagues who were hesitant to, to send an email that would be inappropriate or whatever, I mean, like not be a good fit. And then for you, you just mail them all out and see who responds. And so you, you each lean into your process or your reality, and that becomes what works for you. You iterate along those lines, I mean. I could definitely relate to this. With Coach AI, are you still involved with them? Are you still- I left, so you, I left you've, like you've a month ago, yeah. Okay. So what is on the horizon for you then? Because it seems like you're very invested in AI still and in coaching others and learning and sharing knowledge. Just can you talk at all about what you're looking at? So look, I have the, because I already built my company and sold it to a big company and I've been through the process of establishing a company, going through fundraising and then acquisition, I have like the privilege of doing things that I like. And I spend a year like, like I said, I'm 39 now, and I've been doing entrepreneurship pretty much ever since I remember myself. So I never worked at a company. And in front, after they acquired Pico, I spent six months there and then another six months at, at Coach, which both was really good experiences. But also, I'm so used to being an entrepreneur and, and to run my own gigs that I decided that this is what I want to do. And this year outside working for other companies was was really, it was a great learning experience. But at the end of the day, it wasn't kind of like the way I want to live my life. So what I'm doing now is I'm doing consultancy for companies as a side gig, mainly because I like it. And I'm enjoying, it's pretty fun to work on other people's problems. <laughs> and when you're looking at companies from the outside, you sometimes see things that people from the outside, from the inside don't see, and you can easily help them kind of like rearrange things and, and, you know, really move the needle really fast, which is fun. And it also, you know, it brings some income, so I cannot complain. But also I'm working on my own startups or we have like three ventures that we're working on. One, one of them is what I talked about in the regulation of AI. The two others I can't, it's too early to like to discuss, but I'm working on my own things. This is my comfort zone. This is where I was always the best me. So sounds like Leonardo da Vinci, just uh, constantly <laughs> creating and innovating. Exactly, exactly like <laughs> what I thought. I'm, I'm usually, I'm usually introducing myself as uh, you know, <laughs> the new age Leonardo da Vinci. Not uh, many people have successfully built and sold a company. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what that journey was like and what like the top one to three lessons you learned in that in that whole journey was. Like, what, what did you know that you wanted to sell the company when you started it? Uh, so it depends on what you want to hear. Do you want to hear the cliches or you want to hear the, <laughs> the, the hard stuff? Let's hear the hard stuff. Yeah, building a company is super hard. Okay. Everybody, anyone who says something different is a liar. Is is speaking from a position, trying to show that everything is is fun. I don't know any entrepreneur who sleep well at night. Everybody are concerned about what's going to happen tomorrow. That's the entrepreneurship life. So whoever thinks of of starting to do something like this, it's a roller coaster. 
an unbalanced one. You don't really know if you're going to get off. You don't really know when you're going to get off. There's lots of uncertainty. It's a hard journey, okay? So it's not for everyone. And although anybody, anyone want to be part of this, it's not for any, everyone. There's other ways to be, I don't know how to say it, like to, to bring the best out of yourself, even if you're not an entrepreneur at a startup company. Startup is kind of like the most extreme journey. And it also has very specific preferences and very specific profile that you need to have in order to be able to, to move down through the funnel. That's one thing. So everybody needs okay. to know it's hard. Nobody likes to speak about it a lot. People like to say that, you know, it's hard, but we, we dig through. Some people are unable to dig through. You know, it's hard. Even us, we had a lot of moments that we wanted to throw everything and, and stop it. It's a hard journey. There's a lots of benefits and there's a lots of fun things and there's a lots of learning experiences. There's a lots of good stuff. Like you said, the glass is half full, but it's a hard journey. It's not for anyone or not for everyone. The other thing we didn't think about like how the end result is going to be, like how an acquisition is going to look like. We were in the process of building a big company. Unfortunately, at some point at our Series A, we had a problem with some investors who were supposed to lead around and forgot to tell us that they don't have money, which got us into this vortex of need to understand what we're going to do. Do we want to continue and build a company? Do we want to fundraise? Do we want to sell? And we decided that we're going to go to an acquisition and, and merge to a bigger organization. We just felt that we got to, you know, the cap of what we can do with the resources we had and we wanted to move on. So it's not like, you know, we didn't sell our company to Google for a billion dollar, but it was even, even though it was an important step and it was a step that, you know, 98% of companies doesn't get there. So we were fortunate enough to find the proper acquirer and to do a, a successful M&A process with them, which is itself a, a complicated process. That leads to my next question. Like, what is the M&A process like high level? Yeah, I, can, I can't really speak about specifics. You know, there's a lot of uh, confidentiality uh, clauses in those agreements. It depends on how you get to, to the process. We get to the process from a place that we want to move on, which is, which is never a good thing in general. It, it was really, from, from the acquirer side, it was really welcoming. Like we saw, we, we had a really good experience with the acquirer and, and they were pretty much how how to say it. they were pretty much they were listening to things that we needed in order to make it happen in general everybody look at startups and thinks about you know an exit and lots of cash and being rich it doesn't happen in 99.5% of cases like people who really get rich from those type of things are usually they're, they're like really a friction of mergers really ends up with a lot of money. And also it takes a lot of time after the merger until you actually meet money if you survived the process. And what nobody talks about in those things is the process of after the merger. It's called PMI. It's called post-merger integration. And the post-merger integration is a whole world which nobody speaks about how hard it is to for a big organization to merge and, you know, get inside his infrastructure, a small, fast company. This is, this is a super complicated, emotional process. A majority of CEOs are unable to, like, they, they do the process and then they leave. 
you would not see a lot of uh, CEOs staying after mergers. And there's a reason for that. It's not, it's because it's hard to go through the process. It's hard to find your new place. It's hard to have your product being used at other system. It has to get used to, you know, to a thousand people company. It's a different thing, especially when the mergers are between a very big company and a small one. There are a lot, there are a lot of things that are very complicated. I think PMI is probably the most untalked topic about how a merger looks after. And it's super duper complicated. When you say PMI, I think Project Management Institute. I didn't think post-merger integration. So yeah, to your point, I, I think it's probably a good idea to, to learn more about that. Yes, I think that companies who do a lot of mergers and acquisition usually have some sort of PMI process in place. I talked with someone, I don't even remember who it was during those, those days when, when the merger started. And they said, even us, that we have a process in place and it's kind of like structured, it's still horrible. It's a hard process to take a small company and get it into a big company. And I know from friends who've done big exits or at least big exit on paper and on news, uh, on the, on the news headlines. Even when, when they were merged into Google or to tech giants, painful, hard, and, and really, really complicated, emotionally and professionally. What would you have done differently now that you have wisdom, hindsight being 2020, looking back? What would you have done differently in the merger and acquisition phase? I'm not sure. Again, first of all, I'm not the type of person. I'm not looking back. We decided what we decided based on based on the, the the data and the reality we had, and we made decision based on that. I obviously have a lot of insights and a lot of understanding of. It's not more of, of what I would have done different. It's more of how I'm going to act from now on. So I'm kind of like I'm more learning and building it from now. There's a lot of things I would have done differently. I think I would have built the company from scratch completely differently, and the companies I'm building now are are being built completely different than the way Pico was. Not that Pico was bad. Pico was our first tech venture and we learned a lot through the process. Now I've seen the whole journey. I know the game. I know the players. I know the KPIs. I know what's important. I know what's not important. So I can really focus on building on on what's important in order to build something that is going to be big. I'm also, at least in, in the new ventures, we're not running into fundraising. Like we are funding it uh, independently and we are looking at trying to, to do as much as we can without involving other people. That's what I said. I'm, look, I'm not necessarily looking at this point to get to building a big company. I want first to improve the financial side of the company. I want to make money. I want to make profit. And then if we fundraise, we fundraise for growth and not fundraise to validate or start our ideas. Again, I'm speaking from a privileged uh, position. I already done this once. I have a lot of experience. It's, again, it's easy to say, but for someone who's just starting his first startup company, it's sometimes hard to understand. And I see it a lot with, with startups I'm consulting to. It's sometimes hard. It's a switch in mind that you need to go through. Sometimes you just have to go through the pain yourself, go through the lessons yourself to be able to understand. I had a conversation with one of my mentors and she said something similar where like in your position, she was a consultant and giving advice and they weren't hearing her. And I thought perhaps they just weren't ready to hear her. Like once they go through and then they're, oh, Asaf is right. Asaf, this is what Asaf meant. You, know, you can only learn so much from a book or from a classroom. I think sometimes you have to live it. One of the things I'm doing, again, as a side thing, which, which I really love is to help businesses that are not tech oriented, like real businesses, not startups. 
And when you're working with real, not that I'm, I'm not trying to underestimate startup founders, right? But I'm speaking about people who run physical businesses with real cash flows when they have credit issues and banks are not willing to help and there's no funding opportunities and they are in this cycle. And the biggest challenge when you're trying to help them, even if you want to come in and invest, you know, like a 50K in order to, to unsolve the problem now and move on to, to the next phase with them together, most of the problems are on the mental side. Like you can come as rational as you want and you can show them the numbers and you can show them what could happen. You can show them the worst case scenario of how bad things could be if they will not act now. And yet the mentality of you know a small business manager or a small business owner is something that is really hard to change. In startups, there is more openness to, to the community and to the advice and to mentorship and such. I'm less into this, like mentorship is less my thing. I'm more on the hustling side. Like I like to get my hands dirty and I like to come and work with founders and with CEOs and help them build the story right. Stories always comes from it always comes from understanding the market very well, understanding the business logic very well, understanding the unit economics very well, understanding what's important, what's not, what you want to put in your pitch, what you want to put in the second meeting and so on. And I really like to work very closely with founders on that less on high-level mentoring thing. I'm just less, it's less my thing. Like I'm more in the details. So to recap, what I heard from you is that entrepreneurship is glamorized and it is great, but people should understand that it's incredibly difficult and it's not for everyone. That's not to say that we all can't have our hero's journey, but it might look different than what's on the cover of a magazine. And with the merger and acquisition phase, there's a lot of challenges in that process, but particularly on the other side of it in the post-merger integration and that people should think about that. For both sides, I'm speaking as the founder, but also for the for the company which acquires you, they also have challenges. And sometimes we're so deep into our own things, we don't see others. They're also challenging with now getting people you get a chunk of people into your department, which needs to get lots of new operation things, whether it's computers, email address, whatever. And now you need to integrate a product into your product portfolio. There's a lot going on. It's a really complicated process. And you plan to do it again? Uh, plan? I didn't plan this one. <laughs> so okay. again, I'm not planning that. I'm not, I'm not planning that. I'm, I, I will not be... I'm not afraid of doing it again. So if I will be in a position when I need to, I would. That's part of that's part of the game. If I will get into the game, I will understand that it's probably going to happen one point or another. I'm not concerned. Don't like misunderstand me. I'm I'm just trying to speak very frankly. It's hard. There's challenges. It doesn't mean I will not do it again. Exactly like I just left a very good job for building my own companies. So <laughs> that's my fortune, probably. That's my my destiny. Yeah, you, you like to you like to build, you like to, like you say, get your hands dirty and iterate. No, I appreciate the perspective. Sometimes with the courses that you buy, they have a tendency to sugarcoat or to glamorize certain things. And that's great, you know, funneling people into the space. I'm but not very good at sugarcoating. So. <laughs> well, it takes all kinds. Yeah. It's it's good to hear some of the sobering realities as well. So yeah, thank you for talking to us about AI and you brought up some really interesting perspectives there as well as building and selling a company. Is there anything that you would like leave other entrepreneurs or people that are thinking of starting their own company that we didn't get to touch on? 
nothing that comes out of my mind. There's probably a lot. I would say one of the things I was always, I was always very open. Like I'm very reachable. You can reach me out on LinkedIn, on my email. I'm always answering, even if something. The only people I don't answer them, it's the cold sales, <laughs> LinkedIn bots. These are the only one I'm not answering, but, but I'm very easily reachable and I'm always trying to help if I can. And I think... I believe in, you know, doing good and it helped me a lot. And the fact that I always say yes brought me to a lot of opportunities that if I would have said no in the past, I wouldn't get to. So as an agenda, I'm always positive. I'm always trying to do things. I'm always prefer doing something rather than not doing something. So so first of all, it means that, yeah, if, if someone hears this and want to reach out and ask questions or have a conversation, I'm more than happy. But also as an agenda, I think entrepreneurs need to be on the one side, very open to listen to people and to talk with people, but also very careful about not wasting too much time on this because they need to build companies, but the, but the position should be positive. Okay, duly noted. Well, thank you, Asaf. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Likewise. Thanks a lot, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon.